Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church again today. Let's begin by praying. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for you and your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that when we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to die for us at the cross. He was buried and you raised him from the dead on the third day, so that whoever believes in your Son will never perish but has eternal life. Father, we also want to thank you for the great gifts that you've blessed us with as your children. We want to thank you that we're in union with Jesus Christ. We want to thank you, Father, that you have prepared things beyond our ability to understand for us, that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father, today we ask that as we study and hear and learn about this great first miracle that the Lord Jesus Christ performed in Cana of Galilee, that we would reflect not only on the miracle itself, but even more importantly on the meaning of it in terms of who your son really is. We also pray this morning, Father, for all those Christians that are being persecuted Wherever they might be, we know that uh, you will provide the strength that they need, and we ask you for that, and we thank you ahead of time. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we offer this prayer. Amen. Good morning again, everyone. Um, Every month, we sponsor a missionary organization. This month, we have been sponsoring Chosen People Ministries. You can see their website www.chosenpeople.com. They uh, have a ministry to the Jewish people. And uh, they, also tr- they also teach the churches how to minister to the Jewish people. So it's a really important ministry. It's something that the church is called to. And uh, we like to support them in any way that we can. Also, I want to give you a brief update on the sale of our church building. Well, we do have a contract now. We have a buyer and uh, we're, we're in what is known as the contingency period. What it basically means is that when you buy a commercial building, you want to make sure you can use it for the purpose that you bought it for. Makes sense, right? But that often involves getting approvals so that you are sure you can step into that building and use it the way you want to. And that's where we're at. A buyer has a period of time when they can still back out if they don't get the approvals that they need. So keep that in prayer. Um, don't have a, like a specific time frame, but probably in the next two to three months, if all, if all goes as planned. That's what we're looking at. So we got to now get busy figuring out where we're headed next and also uh, making the plans to make sure that we're out of here and all the things that we need to take out, we take out. So keep that all in prayer. I know the Lord will take care of it in any event. All right, this morning we are going to be in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if you'd like to turn there now, you certainly can. John chapter 2, verse 1. And the title of today's message comes from verse 1. There was a wedding in Cana. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. John chapter 2, verse 1. Let's begin together. I'll read it with you, for you, with you. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. 20 or 30 gallons times six, 25 right in the middle, that's 150 gallons. A pint is a pound. A pint is a pound, yeah. So eight pints. Is it four pints? Help me out here. No, eight pints. No, two pints to a quart. Two quarts, yeah, eight. So eight times 150, that's a lot of weight to carry around. 150 gallons, as we'll see what it's going to turn into, is a lot. All right, so we'll see that. Just keep that in mind, abundance. That's really important. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So we remember last week, we were ending chapter 1, and Jesus and his disciples were still in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John's baptism ministry had occurred, and where these disciples, for the most part, had first been disciples of John. And then at the end of that, chapter 1, he says, you are going to see greater things than what you've already seen. And that leads us into, really, the body of this gospel, starting here in chapter 2, verse 1. It's sometimes called the book of signs, because there are seven different Miraculous signs that John records of many more, by the way, many, many more that Jesus actually performed. But he picks seven, and the reason he does is because he's driving the narrative towards the meaning and purpose that he has for writing this gospel, as we've already seen in chapter 20. These things have been written, these signs that are written, so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. We're going to see how all the things that he includes in this gospel are, 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 are surrounding and supporting that one purpose. To reveal that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that you may understand that, know that, and believe in him. Also today, we're going to go back to the prologue, which we were on. That's, remember, that's chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And, and so it's going to, we're going to see this today. We're going to reflect back on that information we're given about the Lord there is now going to be found here. So we'll try to show you that some of that this morning. So in any event, the, 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 the disciples from Galilee and Jesus from Galilee leave Bethany beyond the Jordan and they're headed up to Galilee and they arrive in Cana. Now I showed you this map briefly last week. I want, I want you to know why it says the third day. All right, so it's not on this map, but you remember from last week. Hopefully, this is where Bethany beyond the Jordan is. Jews had to cross the Jordan again 
to get to the Bethany beyond the Jordan that's here. And then there's the valley of the Jordan River, which they no doubt followed, because over here is very mountainous. And they come on up all the way to the Sea of Galilee. And then if you take a left, uh, north, there's Cana. There's Nazareth where Jesus was born. So Cana was about nine miles northeast of, of Nazareth. This distance is about 75 miles. They walked it. Now, now, at a great brisk pace, you can walk 20 to 25 miles a day. You know, good luck with that one day. And they did it probably three days, because that's why it says on the third day they arrived. So that's a lot of walking. From a lot of walking to a lot of water to a lot of wine. All right, let's keep going. By the way, one other thing about it is that this was a pretty insignificant town. A very insignificant town. I don't know if you remember, but we were in the book of Colossians. And the same thing was true of Colossae. It's, it's, it's better known sister cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. And this was like not really well known. And yet some of the most amazing revelation about who Christ is occurred in the little known town. Jesus Christ was born out, the, out there in, um, in Bethlehem and then the message went out to the little people, right? To the shepherds and so forth. So there's this theme over and over again that the Lord goes to the insignificant, the poor, the dispossessed, as it were, um, the ones that are in the darkness, worldly speaking, and then brings about the greatest occurrences, the greatest things usually happen in those places. So that's, that's true here too. Cana was insignificant. But there was a wedding feast going on, and that was a major celebration in the Jewish culture. Um, it, the wedding celebration, by the way, could last up to a week. That's not, now, now you start to understand why you need some wine for seven, seven days, of, you know, hopefully not of drinking, uh, you know, 24-7. That wouldn't be pretty, but, but there's a celebration that goes on for a number of days, and it marks the beginning of the marriage, and there's a whole other set of things that we won't go into today about how that wedding was conducted. But in any event, we're now, they're already married and now there's a celebration. Jesus and his disciples have been invited. And also his, the mother of Jesus. Now it's interesting that his disciples were invited. The reason is, is because they weren't disciples five days ago. So either they already were invited because they were from that region, or more likely they were invited because of Jesus. And I think that's probably why it was. That somehow they got word that he was in town and then he had these other people with him. And they said, you know, sure, you can come to the wedding too. Some people think that's why they ran out of wine. But I, I, I rather doubt that. I hope not. I have heard some things about those uh, fishermen in Galilee, but we won't get into that. <clears throat> so it's going to happen. Jesus will now perform his first miraculous sign at this wedding feast in an insignificant town called Cana. Now, we've already looked at the idea of signs. It's critical. It's it's central to this gospel. I already mentioned once this morning the purpose which is given at the end, John 20, 30 to 31, again, is that these signs have been recorded so that you might know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing that, you may have life in his name. So we've already been there, we've already seen what a sign is, but I want to review that this morning. A sign is more than a miracle. The miracle gets people's attention. You know, this, this story of Jesus 
at Cana turning the water into wine, that is very well known, very familiar, and not just to Christians. Right? This is one of those stories that people uh, are always attracted to, and you can see why. Um, but, you know, the, the unbelievers will always focus on the miracle itself. Wow, what a great thing. It turned from water to wine. Oh, look, he raised somebody from the dead. But the, but the mere miracle, as amazing as it is, does not make a sign. It's a miracle, but it's not a sign. You see, a sign is a miracle with meaning. And, you have those, and by the way, the meaning is more important than the miracle. There's a message. And, and, and John, in most cases of this gospel, will provide a discourse afterwards that will really reveal the meaning of whatever the sign or miracle he just performed really is, the meaning. For example, when he feeds the 5,000, right, with the bread and the loaves, of, the loaves of bread and the fish, at the end of it, he just goes into a discourse that he's the bread of life. And by the way, the meaning of all of the signs in this gospel points to him, his identity. All right, so, and we'll see that here. It's the same thing as here, but again... I can put it mathematically. A sign equals miracle plus meaning. And again, unbelievers can see, witness the miracle. They, they can see that it's supernatural. But only the believers put together the meaning plus the miracle. And that's the key. That's why the disciples believed in him. All right. Just like we saw this a couple of weeks ago, when we're going to see in the future, that, uh, in the future of our series anyway, that Jesus went to Lazarus in the tomb and raised him from the dead. Now, everybody there saw that, that Lazarus came forth from the tomb, and they all knew that that was a miracle. But they didn't all get the meaning. As a matter of fact, some clearly did not get the meaning, because if they understood that this is the Son of God, they believed it, they believed this is the chosen Messiah, then they would have been overwhelmed with joy. But some of them, if you remember, said, wait a minute, this is a big problem. I'm going back to the leaders, and I'm going to tell them what happened. And as a matter of fact, that message got back, and that convinced the leaders that they have to have this Jesus die for the, for that they saw was the sake of the nation. So this isn't enough. All right, This and this are a sign. And again, the meaning is revealed when someone believes the message. All right? So we'll see that this morning, how that plays into this particular first event. Now, I mentioned already the story of Jesus turning water into wine. Excuse me. Drink a little water. Oops. No, I don't have that power. Still water. But it's a very familiar story. Now, we've already been through it once, and you can see the details are provided. You know, what happened, why it happened, who said what. But they're pretty straightforward. I think you could read through this one or two times and really get that point. Okay? So we're not going to focus so much on the activity of the miracle, but we're going to focus on the meaning of the miracle. What did this mean? What did it mean to, first of all, the people at the wedding... Okay, but that meant something, that was, the, that was the earthly, worldly kind of thing that was going on, but on a whole other level. We're going to see what that whole higher level was, that Jesus Christ revealing something about who he is. That's who we're going to focus on. All right, go back to verse 3 of John chapter 2. Verse 3 of John 2. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
they have no wine. See, she found out pretty quickly, and probably that was because she was among the group that was actually helping this, put this wedding on. So she knew right away when it happened. Right, that was a big problem, as we'll see in a second. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? Not a good translation. We'll get into that, too. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour, very important word, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That was a sign of faith, by the way. He would have to chastise her for trying to use her influence as a mom. But at the same time, when he saw that she still didn't know what the Jesus was going to do, but he says, you can rely on that guy. Whatever he says, do it. The wine ran out. The mother of Jesus informs him about it. They have no wine. Now, in the Jewish culture of that time, this would be a huge breach of hospitality. Huge breach of hospitality. In a way, I mean, imagine if you went to a wedding here in this beautiful place, and then they served the first course, you know, salad, and then they're like, that's it. You know, there's no more to eat, there's nothing else to drink. You know, we wouldn't be too happy either, probably, at that wedding. But this was, but because of the, how it involved the community and what it meant, and how the fact that the bridegroom, this was his moment to shine, he was to make sure this was all provided. As a matter of fact, there were cases of lawsuits afterwards, the family of the bride, if the, if the bridegroom hadn't done his job. So this is a big deal. It was a huge breach of hospitality. It would result in shame and embarrassment. Shame and embarrassment, especially for the bridegroom, again, who was responsible to provide the food and drink for the feast. Now, I want to put, I want to put this in a certain way that's going to set us up for the rest of this. The old wine had run out. It had run its course. It proved to be insufficient. Now, Jesus replies to her, Woman, not normally how a son would address his mother. By the way, that's going to be the whole point. Now, it wasn't, some people think that this was like a put down, and it's, it really wasn't. It was, a, it was a common statement of respect for a lady. But it wasn't mom, all right? That's, that's important. And then we have the next phrase, Woman, what does that have to do with us? This is an idiom in the Hebrew. Right? Um, in other words, it was, a, it was a, kind of like a proverb. It was a saying, and uh, people understood what it meant. But the words itself, if you were to translate them into another language, you may not necessarily see it at all. Right? And that's the case here. The gist of this is really this. Woman... You and I are not on the same page with this. It's a contrast. So that's why the us is really bad. It's him, and he's saying, I'm, on, I'm at one level right now. You're at another level. You, you, you still want to treat me as your little boy, in a sense. All right? I'm going to use my motherly advantages here to try to convince you to help. And he's looking at her, and he's, I presume, and I know that he's saying, this is a whole new ballgame. All right. No, we're gonna. This is a change now in the relationship between Jesus and his mother. All right. So again, she was using her family connection, which is natural, right? Hey, my son, you know, he can do anything. 
proud mom, right? Proud Jewish mom, right? I'm going to get him to take him. Now, she didn't know necessarily that he was going to perform a miracle, only that he was very resourceful, reliable. He had disciples with him. They had already agreed to follow him. He's, pro- he's a guy who can get things done. See, that wasn't nece- he didn't necessarily understand it's a miracle, but he did. And he knew what she was asking. And she had no understanding of it. She didn't understand the ramifications of what she was asking. About what Jesus would eventually do to solve the problem. And how significant that was. All right. Jesus will perform his first, first sign miracle. It's the beginning of his signs. By the way, it is the first miracle period. You can look at the other Gospels. This came before any of the other ones. It will set the stage. It will set the tone. It will put in in place the pieces of it that would be again and again used, if you put it that way. So it was a foundational thing. Okay. It will reveal his glory to the disciples, and we'll see this is the glory of the Messiah. And that's why I say she had, mom had no idea what she was asking about. Because this would be the time, not her time, not because she wants it, but as we'll see, because the Heavenly Father ordains things for the Lord to the hour, to the place, again and again. The idea was to reveal him again and again so that people could believe in him. He was the only begotten of the Father. Now that goes back to the prologue, right? We, it, we, get, a, we get an inside view of things because of what John says in those first 18 verses, all right? But, but the people that were with him, the disciples at this point, the people at the wedding, even his mother, they didn't know any of those things. They didn't know that he was, the, he was God in the flesh. They didn't know that he was superseding Moses in the law. They didn't know any of those things, but the reader does. And so the reader, like us, we can see this unfolding of what we're told about him and then how it was then brought to the people, brought to his disciples, and in a little bit at a time, actually, so that they would learn. But again, he's not going to do this miracle because his mother asks, and that's so important. Why? Because then it, then it would look like that, that was, his motivation was, in a sense, earthly. But it, it won't be. He will do it at the precise moment, his hour, that his father tells him to. Now, there's another place where Jesus talks about him, him returning, and he says, you don't know the hour. I don't even, the Son of Man doesn't know the hour. Only the Father does. And so you can take that concept and apply it here, though it's not stated outright, that he was not going to take his cue from anybody but his Father. Okay. Each time this happens, in these seven sign miracles, his, his glory will be revealed, but all of it is choreographed, if I could use that word, put together ahead of time, planned out, timed perfectly by the Father. My hour has not yet come. What does he mean by that? His hour. It's used quite a bit in the Gospel of John. And this is what happens. It, it is tracking forward progress towards what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, and he's moving through his ministry. Now, at this point in time, this was a sort of private miracle. As we see at the end, it's really his disciples that really got it, got the meaning of it. As time goes on, they'll become more and more public. All right? um, the feeding of the 5,000, leading all the way up to Lazarus, which was, a, which was an incredible thing that all kinds of people saw. So there's a progression 
in these signs. And they're all designed to reveal Christ's glory, his hour, tracking his progress, getting closer, getting closer, going to Jerusalem the last time, his glorification. Now, what is his glorification? It wasn't the miracles. You see, that's what people would say of the world. They would say, well, it's a glorious miracle. This guy's a real miracle worker, right? That's not it at all. That's not what the word glory means, by the way. When it talks about the glory of God, it really means him showing who he is to people, right? Who he is. The focus is on who he is. So what would show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior? Not the miracles. They, were, they had the meaning being pointed to, but the meaning itself was his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And you, as you go through the Gospel of John, and I hope, I say this every week, that you are reading it, all right, again and again. I'm reading something right now that describes the Gospel of John as a symphony. And it's really a kind of a great way. I don't know if you, if you notice, but there's sort of a lot of repetition. But there's, there's like a variation on it, just kind of like a symphony. And that's how this is put together so that you get the climax at the end. In any event, please continue to read the Gospel of John so you will see these connections. Perhaps this week when you read it, you can just focus on his hour, for example. And you can see how that marches forward as the Gospel progresses all the way up and culminating in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. I want to give you one example. Please turn to the Gospel of John, verse, chapter 12, verse 23. Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 23. In Cana of Galilee, he tells his mom, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 12, he'll say the opposite. Look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 23. And Jesus answered them. These are the people in Jerusalem, right before he's going to go to the cross. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The same two things, hour and glory. But he was talking about it in terms of something that was going to really be shown to the utmost when he dies. But along the way, he will reveal some of it. But the real hour is when the Son goes to the cross. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He would pray to the Father in chapter 17, Father, glorify your Son with the glory that we had before the world was. That would be revealed at the cross. Now again, think about that. You know, there are all these people that followed him. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And then a few days later maybe a couple of weeks, they see him on the cross. Now, to somebody who didn't understand the meaning, that would be anything but glory. That makes sense? A man without his clothes on, nailed to a cross, dying. That would never occur to the world that that was a glorious thing. Only what? By believing. And in this case, ultimately by believing that this is God's son in the flesh, dying as the Lamb of God for the sin of the world. That is glorious because it reveals God in a way that that nothing else really ever has or ever will. His mercy, His justice, His grace. That's the glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
His glory would be revealed in his death. All right, so back to, back to Canaan and Galilee. And if you want to go back to John chapter 2, verse 6, which is where we'll be next, coming back, from, coming back from the future when he was got to go to the cross, now back to the, the first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. John 2, 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. These are the servants. Fill the water pots with water. That tells you, by the way, that they weren't full before. And the reason was was because that purification was something that had to be done before they could even participate in the meal. This is kind of the way that the Jews saw things. And it was very external. You know, wash your hands. You know, sometimes the couple would bathe before the celebration. It was all about the body and the externals. That was the water. It was, it was drained and then it, it was put in there again. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. In other words, 100% water, 0% wine to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So again, these particular stone pots held a lot of water, at least 150 gallons. It was there for purification. Now, this was a Jewish ritual. The law was given through Moses. And that ritual was an offshoot of that. It was a little bit not exactly what the Bible says, as you kind of know that happens a lot, even among ministers, maybe especially among ministers at times. But, but it was certainly derived from the law. It was certainly lying up and, lining up and keeping with so many things about the law. There was a lot in the book of Leviticus, for example, about, you know what, you're unclean if you do this, you're unclean if you do that, clean up. It meant, it, it, it meant water, right? It, it, it meant a period of time. It was very external, the cleansing was external. This Jewish ritual, the law was given through Moses, it was ensuring a clean body, the outside. It was an outward cleansing. I'd like you to understand, though, that Jesus came not to institute more outward cleansing. There was plenty of that. But to institute an inward cleansing. All right. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 39, with regard to this. Luke chapter 11, verse 39. One of the pristine, wonderful things about Cana, there are no Pharisees there. They wouldn't show up till later. They would hound Jesus everywhere along the way. They were them and they and the high priests were the indications that there was conflict, that the world was seeping into and resisting the ministry of Jesus Christ to bring on the kingdom. Chapter eleven, Luke, verse thirty nine. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. And there it is. Okay, you're focused so focused on the outside of things. How you look, how clean you are, how clean your plates are. Uh, you know, as if, right? As if God is looking around and saying, I like that guy. He's got a clean plate. No, right? He's always looking at the heart. The Jewish ritual didn't account for that. 
Here you are washing the outside, but inside you've got robbery, wickedness, evil. Okay. Back to John, nine, to John 2, verse 9. Let's continue, because I want to get, obviously, to the summing up of the meaning. We're going to, we've seen it in parts already. The water has run out. I mean, the wine has run out. It was insufficient. Outward cleansing. Okay. John chapter 2, back in chapter 2, verse 9. John 2, 9. So now the pots are full to the brim. And then Jesus says, draw some of it out, give it to the head waiter, and they obeyed him. And now we have the head waiter, verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine. So that's the indication of a miracle, right? Up till now, it seemed very conventional. They have no wine, it's a problem. Jesus talks to the servants. He says, put water in the six stone water pots, and they're, they're kind of probably wondering, why are we doing this? This is usually used for purification, not drinking. What's going on, right? But now we see it's a miracle. The water, has, which had become wine, but, they, but he, the head waiter, did not know where it came from. After all, the only thing he knows is that some servants are coming up to him and saying, here, taste this. He didn't know where it came from, but it was wine. The servants who had drawn the water knew. So when he tasted the water, the head waiter immediately called the bridegroom over. Hey, come here. And he said to him, everybody knows that everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then he comes and serves the poorer wine. But you, and this was, he was incredulous. He couldn't believe it. He was so surprised that this, he's never happened before. This guy was like a professional. Right? He would run weddings. He, would, he understood wine. He understood how to put things together. He understood how to you know, get the meals out and all that stuff. But he had never seen a case where the good wine was not served at the beginning. All right. Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This head waiter, this master of the banquet, oh, he knew his wines all right, but he didn't know where this wine had come from. By the way, all of that, the fact that he was an expert on wine and he didn't had no idea where this came from, you know what that means about him? He was the perfect witness to the miracle. Why? Because he didn't know where the, where the wine had come from, okay? But he did know it was good. And so he was an unbiased, Right? He had no idea that this had anything to do with Jesus. Right? He was an expert at wine. So he was the perfect witness of the miracle. Perfect witness of the miracle. Now, he, ser- he was a servant here, even though he was the head waiter. Why? Because he served to attest to what? The superior quality of this new wine. Old wine ran out. Insufficient. New wine Superior quality. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Because we're going to move pretty soon from the, the, the earthly pieces here of water and wine to some new place. All right? We'll see that. Of course. The old wine ran out. The good wine has been kept back until now. The old wine, as we're going to see, was something that, in, that, that stood for an old way of things. Right, the new wine, a new way of things. All right. The old wine ran out. The good wine has been kept back until now. In the same way, we already saw Jesus said, my time has not yet come. 
And then until now, say when the miracle occurs, it's now the good wine has appeared. Now Jesus has revealed to those who would have believe, be able to believe it who he is. Things move from the action of the miracle. That's what's well known. Right? You talk about the wedding feast at Cana. Right? All, the, all the discussion about most people will be, yeah, that was a miracle. Jesus turned water into wine. And then they'll get into the fact that, well, but I don't believe in miracles and all that nonsense. Why? Because they're focused on the action of the miracle. But the idea here and what we are to see as believers in Christ is the meaning of the sign. And that's something that the world does not understand, could not understand. Because Christ came into the world, light was in the world, the Son, the Word of God. And He came for a purpose. He came to fulfill, fulfill the old order of, Jeru- of Judaism. He came to fulfill the law. He would say that again and again. The law was used as a, to point things out, not to save anybody. The law couldn't give life. It can only point out that all have sinned and come short like the wine running out of the glory of God. See, that was he was going to fulfill the law, all of the tenets of it, the, all the sacrifices, all the feast days, and so forth. All pointed forward to him, and then he was going to terminate it. Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. Interestingly, for those who believe. Why? Because those who don't believe still think they're under the law. That's religion. Most of the people, by far, in this country, and certainly around the world, don't understand that Jesus is the end of the law. And so in one way or another, they're still under law. Maybe not capital L, but law. You know, ritual. You know, the fact that if you do these things, then... God or a higher being or whoever they believe in, you know, will be satisfied or at least won't strike them down, which is what a lot of other religions like Islam is worried about. From the action of the miracle to the meaning of the sign, Christ comes into the world. He fulfills the old order of things. He would say, for example, even being baptized by John, John looked at him and said, no, wait a minute, you want to baptize me. I'm the one who is dirty, not you. But he said, look, permit it. Permit it now, all right, so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. What is he saying? That Jesus will fulfill the old order of things and then terminate it. And then it will be replaced with the new things that have come, grace and truth and the Spirit. And we saw that in the prologue. Let's go back. John chapter 1, verse 17. John chapter 1, verse 17. This, again, is why you have to read this over and over again. I mean, as it were, the prologue kind of lays out all the themes of the symphony. That often happens at the beginning. You hear the different major melodies of the, of the theme, and then you go through it, and some of it, it sounds the same, it sounds the same. He's talking about doing the will of the Father, and then boom, there's something new. There's a variation on it, but you have to get the fundamentals down. That's John 1, 1 to 18. We're going to come back to that again and again as we see it played out in different circumstances in the life of Jesus that's recorded in this gospel. Here's an example right here. John 1.17. The law. We've been talking about the law. The law was given through Moses. Okay? But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. There was an old and there's a new. There was the law 
and then there's grace and truth. Now, what's the big difference between the two? Well, I'm not talking about in terms of the nature of them, but what, how, what happened to move from the law of Moses to grace and truth in the Spirit? This person, Jesus Christ, who is the subject of this gospel. The water that was used for the purification rites, that's the law. That's Moses. It's now replaced, I mean, miraculously, but replaced. Hey, look, the water's gone, and in its place there is the greatest wine that's ever been produced. That's the new wine of grace. Now you might say, well, that's rather, how did you get that? Real simple, John 1.17. The law was given through Moses, purification rites of the water, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Replacement time, the new wine of grace and truth. Please turn to Hebrews now, chapter 8, verse 7. Hebrews does a marvelous job of laying this out in specifics. What do I mean? About what the law was and how insufficient it was and how it now has been perfected. There was an old high priest. Some of them were really old. But there was a high priest, but he was only a man. He sinned. He died. But then we have the new, greater high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We had the animal sacrifices. Who, that blood couldn't save anybody, couldn't forgive a sin. But now we have the Lamb of God, who does take away the sin of the world. So Hebrews is really, the, if you really want to see this, the details of all of this, Hebrews is the place to go about the old law and the new things that have come because of Jesus. Hebrews 8, 7. Hebrews 8, 7. I'll give you a second to go there. Hebrews 8, 7. 4. If that first covenant, and when you hear first, what do you automatically think? If I say first, I want you to go to the store. Now, if that was all there was, you'd be at the store, right? Here I am, now what? No, there's always something else that comes after it. First, that first covenant, had been, if it had been faultless, the wine never would have run out, right? If it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now the word covenant is here. And that's a, that's a really significant word, especially to the Jews. Actually, almost entirely to the Jews. Right? They had a covenant with Moses, but they also knew about these, this covenant that the Lord had with Abraham that hadn't been fulfilled and couldn't be fulfilled by the law. Okay, so there's two. Jer- Jeremiah would come on the scene and say the same thing. There's a day coming when there's a new covenant, and then we, there you start to understand that he's talking about the kingdom of God, when the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Then in that passage is actually a long quotation from, the, from Jeremiah, which we won't look at today. We'll just look at verse 13. It concludes it. Notice this. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Made the old wine that ran out obsolete. It was obsolete. It was gone. It didn't run its course. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old, like the law, is ready to what? Disappear, like the water disappeared. See it? This is more than just a miracle. It's a miracle with meaning. 
That's the key. It's a miracle with meaning. Jesus understood this tremendously. Please go forward to the Gospel of Matthew now. Jesus will say the same thing, and he'll say it in the context of the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal that he shared with his disciples. Matthew 26, starting in verse 27. Old things have passed away. New things have come. There was a covenant of Moses. Then there's a new covenant. Jesus will explain this. I want you to see Matthew 26, verse 27. Let's see exactly what he says. We studied the new covenant in detail when we looked at our series on the end times. It is, of course, really for the Jewish people. Jeremiah wrote to the Jews. But, but, because we are See, we are there and we are receiving all the blessings of the new covenant, okay? It's not going to be, we're not going to have a new covenant established on this earth. But we are God's spiritual children. And we are already receiving the blessings, in fact, greater blessings. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But never forget, always tie this to the Jewish people when you hear the word covenant. A lot of people make a mistake when they use that word over and over and over again to refer to the church. Okay? That's wrong, <laughs> Right? That, that's a totally different thing. Okay, covenant. And anyway, Matthew 26, verse 27. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks. Now here we are at a meal again. We have a cup. We have wine. Okay. He gave it to them. And saying, drink from it, all of you. Now so far, this is really consistent with the law of Moses and the, and the Passover meal. Okay, I'll, we'll drink it. But then. Look at, look at verse 28. For this is the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. There's no covenant without blood. Abraham's covenant with the Lord, there was killing animals, for example. There's no covenant without blood. For this is the blood of the covenant. My blood. That was new. My blood, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. His blood. Only his blood. Notice verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, this is the wine itself, from now on until what? The day when I drink it new, the new wine, with you in my Father's kingdom. The covenant has to do with the kingdom. All right, the, new, the old covenant ran its course, couldn't bring about the kingdom, because it, it couldn't open the eyes of the Jews to who Jesus was. So now there's a new covenant that will then be fulfilled on earth when Jesus comes back and the kingdom is set up. Okay, now Israel, again, focus of the covenants of Israel. The wedding feast was significant. I'm not talking about just in the culture. I'm talking about Bible. I'm talking about the whole understanding of their history. <coughs> no, not going to happen today. Matthew 26, 27. No, we're done with that. We're going to go to Isaiah next. Isaiah 25, 6. I'll set that up. You can go there, but I want to give you the principle that we're now going to look at. Give you a moment to get there to Isaiah 25, 6. This is going to exercise your ability to go through the Bible a little bit today, right? 
Okay, we're in, like for the last couple of weeks, I've been easy on you. We're mostly in John. Today, there's a lot we want to see. I want to see about the meaning and how it's tied into their expectations from the Old Testament. How it's tied into what we see at the beginning of John, but also what we uh, saw in the book of Hebrews. Okay, Isaiah 25, 6. We'll read it and then we'll see the principle. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. That's what the wedding feast was all about. A banquet for all peoples on this mountain. That has to do with the fact that when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom, the whole world will be under his reign. So it's for all peoples on this mountain. Notice this, a banquet of what? Aged wine. Choice pieces with marrow, the very best of all. And notice it's repeated, refined, aged wine. The new wine, the superior wine. For Israel, the wedding feast with its best wine portrays the coming kingdom. Now, you might say, yeah, I see that. But I want you to just always now we're tying in what actually happened in Cana with the greater meaning. Okay, you had a wedding feast. Jesus brought out the best wine miraculously. But what did it mean? It meant the kingdom was coming. That would have been something that any Old Testament, any Old Testament saint, any Jewish believer in the first century would completely get, completely understand. That's why, you know, I don't believe that Mary thought he was going to perform a miracle. But when he did, it became obvious who he was to anyone who believed, believed the scriptures. Okay, so that's, that's, that's Israel, right? We see it there, lavish banquet, refined aged wine. There's my clicker. Now, Jesus also, by the way, he talked a lot about the kingdom. He, too, compared it to a wedding. And I want you to go to Matthew 22, verse 1. This tie-in, this connection between the kingdom and a lavish feast with the best possible wine, as we're going to see, abundant wine. All right, well, Jesus compares the kingdom to a wedding feast also. Notice Matthew 22, verse 1. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. By the way, parable, I'll just set this up for you a little bit. Parables had a dual function. Same thing, actually, it's the exact same thing we're talking about with the signs. The parables, there was activity. And so that anybody could say, oh, this is a great story about a wedding, and I don't know why these people wouldn't come, blah, blah, blah. So it operates on the level what everybody can understand, but really, a parable really has the meaning which is reserved for people who believe. Okay? Because what was happening was that in, this, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going along showing who he is through miracles and his teaching. And then he's rejected. So from that point forward, he says, listen guys, I'm going to keep teaching you. But it's going to be in parables now. And then you'll see. You'll understand it because you're a believer. And all these other people will think it's a nice story. I, I did the funeral message for Lou. You know Lou de Gaspers, right? And um, the gospel about her life. And then at the end of it, right, certain people come up to me and say, you yeah, know, that was marvelous. Lou was a believer. I love what you said, right? Other people came up and said, that was a nice speech. There's the difference. There's the difference. Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. 
for his son, God the Father, for those who have eyes to see, will give a wedding feast, the kingdom, for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk about abundance. Abundance, right? Hundred, that's why I set you up with that 150 gallons figure. Just like last week, I set you up with the number of people that would be in a church if for, just for four months every Sunday, new people invited two more new people. Remember that? Big numbers, like 256,000 after only four months. Now we're not there yet. All right. In the New Testament, abundance of wine. Because that's what we had in the light of the wedding feast of Cana. But it would have meant something. There was a relationship. There was an understanding. What does the abundant wine mean for Israel? It meant abundance of wine would be associated with abundance of joy. Abundance of joy. It will come for the Jews when Messiah sets up his kingdom. All right, I'm, making, I'm trying to make this as like straightforward and it's simple because that's what we remember. We, you know, if I were to get into all the Greek and give you all that stuff, you'd be like, wow, that's really great. That guy's really smart, right? But that's not the goal here. If you walk out of here saying, man, that guy was really on the top of things. He knows his stuff, blah, blah, blah. I failed. Because my point is like John the Baptist, right? I'm nothing. I'm not even fit to untie the sandal strap of who this is really about. It's about the abundance of joy that will come when the Messiah sets up his kingdom. Please look at Jeremiah now. Jeremiah, the one who would describe the new covenant in detail. Jeremiah 31.12. I want you to focus on the joy and the abundance of wine. Jeremiah 31, 12. And, you know, in this particular case, I could give you a lot of scriptures, actually, that say the same thing. That the kingdom will be marked by an abundance of wine. All the way back, by the way, to Genesis 49. All right? When it's going to talk, it talks about the same thing. The blood of the grape and how abundant it would be. Jeremiah 31, 12. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they will be radiant over the bounty, the abundance, the overflowing abundance of the Lord. Over the grain, and notice, and the new wine. The new wine that Jesus brought on the scene. And the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life, new life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. So, by providing the abundant new wine for the wedding feast, okay, Jesus provided abundant new wine for the wedding feast. Now, we, we've seen each of those words. We've seen new wine associated with wedding feast and the abundance, right? We've seen all of that. But, what does it mean? Simple. Simple. Jesus declares he's the Messiah of Israel. Let's go back, though, back to Cana. Now, his disciples, you know, they just, they, 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 they had an inkling of who he was. They were enough to follow him. Now they're in Cana of Galilee, and then he performs this incredible miracle. And uh, for those who believed in him, they saw it. They, they saw what the Old Testament had to say about the abundance of wine and what it meant. 
And now, by doing this miracle, he is literally declaring that he's the Messiah of Israel. Right? John 20, 30-31. That, that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's Lord of all creation. This is the glory. Who he is. is, is God-like. God. No, he is God. Is God being revealed to be God. Which, by the way, was the province of the Father. Jesus never made up his own mind that now I'm going to reveal something about my divinity. It was always God said, it's time for that. It's time for that. God the Father, that is. So he manifested his glory by performing this first sign in Cana, the abundant new wine of the wedding feast. Jesus is declaring that he is the Messiah of Israel. And that's why the mother of the Lord had no idea what she was really asking. Had no idea. This wasn't just about taking care of people at a wedding. It goes way beyond that. Way beyond that. John two eleven. As we as we close today. Yeah, we'll be in John for the rest, just so you can relax. Where's he going to take me to next, Leviticus? You know. Now we're done with the exercising for the most part. You got to go in between John a little bit, but. John 2.11, the final verse, the summing up of things. This beginning of his signs, the first one, the primary one, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, repeating what they say at the beginning. This is the symphony part, coming back to the original theme. And notice he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Signs, glory, believing. He manifested his glory. In other words, this sign, turning the water into wine with its meaning that he is declaring that he's the Messiah, it was meant not to impress people, not to say, wow, this guy's a miracle worker. I want to hang with him. I wonder what else he's going to do. You know, like it's Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey or something. And there were plenty of people who took that approach to Jesus, by the way. They're the same people that once he turned around and said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they're like... No, no, no. We want the miracles. We don't want to be challenged with essentially who you are and what we need. No. But it was meant to lead people to understand who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That could be the title of the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? And here, it's meant to reveal that he's the Messiah. Yes, I'm repeating. It's meant to understand he is the Messiah He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Son of God. Lord of all creation because creation has a way of turning water into wine, does it not? What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that the waters come down and then the vine grows. And then after a few months, right, then the, the grapes appear. And then there's a time for treading them down and getting the, the juice. And then there's a time for fermenting the grape juice. And so forth. So there's a natural way. But nature doesn't do it in a second, does it? No, only the Lord of creation, the one who set up the whole process, can do it in an instant. And that's what happened. He's the Lord of all creation. He was really revealing his power, omnipotence. All right? And anyone who saw the miracle could sense that much. But only those who, had, who believed in him could see that this is the power of the Son of God. The Messiah has come. This was glory that he had before the world was. He manifested his glory. 
and his disciples believed in him. Look at John 1.14. What's that? The prologue. Okay. In this symphony, we're going back to the original theme and seeing how it then played out in this second movement. All right. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. Thinking about Jesus now and his glory. Let's look at this. And the word became flesh. Jesus was God in the flesh. Now, as, as, as God in the flesh, he dwells among them. That meant that he was with them. He would go to weddings with them. He would cry when, the, when, when a good friend died. All right? He was with them. He would say, you know, I don't have a place to live. He would like walk with them 75 miles. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a real, real human as well as God with us. And we saw, the disciples saw his glory. There it is. But what, what was his glory? Here it is. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, right? God's Son. And then what else? Full of grace and truth. Full of the new wine. Full of grace and truth. His glory is revealed in the grace of God. For the grace of God has come to us. The grace of God has come in the death and resurrection of his son. Grace and truth. That's how God wants us to worship him. We'll see that. See, now those of you who have been reading through, you know exactly what I'm talking about now, right? He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. The new wine has come. An abundance of wine, therefore, reveals the abundance of grace. And isn't it abundant? Isn't it abundant? Isn't that what Paul would say over and over again? You have no idea of how you're being graced out now. That as, as, as much as sin tried to destroy you, so much more the grace of God will refill you and give you a victorious life. Abundance of wine reveals abundance of grace. I'm not just making this up, though, because we're going back to the prologue and saying he revealed his glory full of grace and truth. Disciples believed in him. And again, the miracle was visible to all who witnessed it, but his glory could only be seen by those who believed in him. Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Everybody saw the miracle. But not everybody sees the glory of God in it, the person of Christ in it. Now, we've seen that the beginning of signs here comports with the prologue. We've talked about the prologue, the beginning, and how it filters into this. However, as we end, I also want you to realize that it also contributes to the overall purpose of this gospel. I want you to now take one more look at John 2.11. All right, go back to, go forward to 2.11. All right, I want you to imprint this on your brain right now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, who he was, and his disciples believed in him. Signs, who he is, belief. Now, let's go back to the purpose of the gospel forward. John chapter 20, verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. Signs. The glory of who he really is and believing in his name. John chapter 20, verse 30. There were many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, 
the seven he records, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have the abundant new life that he wants you to have. So there you have it. In, in Canaan of Galilee, verse 11 of chapter 2 says, that's the beginning of his signs. These signs have been written. Why? So that you may believe his disciples believed in him. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you see the connection? Can you see how this perfectly supports the overall purpose? The signs will do that. All right, all, all of them will do the same thing. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for this tremendous gospel passage. We just are amazed, Father, at how the Holy Spirit has just crafted this incredible story of Jesus Christ, this gospel, the greatest book, about because it's the greatest subject, your son, And Father, help us now to kind of tie these things together and understand what it means for us who are here now as witnesses in the same way that the disciples were witnesses. We are witnesses now, and we have the word of of life. We have the words of everlasting life in the gospel message. So help us to understand that that's the ultimate thing that our lives should be pointing to as well. And our words should be pointing to as well. Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And Father, we just ask you also today to watch over your people, your children. And ask also, Father, help us to be bold, especially in these days, at stating the truth, especially the truth about your Son and of salvation, that we're all sinners, and that you came and gave your Son so that we would be redeemed out of our sin. And he died for that purpose and was buried and he was raised from the dead. That's a miracle, but it had the ultimate meaning that we are justified by simply believing in him and we will have eternal life. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Keep reading the Gospel of John. We have Bible study every Thursday at 6.30. Because of the COVID situation, we are now doing it on Skype. All right. Um, If you need to know how to get on it, I would suggest you either look at our website on the first page and you'll see an announcement and you can go in there and just do your thing. Or failing that, you can always send an email um, to Mark Pomeroy, um, M-A-R-C. Yeah, he's a C, not a K at lbible.org. Please keep him in prayer. As many of you know, he is having a great battle right now, health-wise, and uh, that's why he can't be among us right now. So we would ask you again to keep praying for him that the Lord would come through for him. All right, we also, by the way, a prayer. We pray at the end of our Bible study every Thursday, and we really want to know what to pray for. All right? We won't know that unless you tell us. Okay? By the way, but there's plenty to pray for. I've never seen a situation where there's been more things to pray for than right now. All right. But still, we have room for whatever else you want to put in there. We don't pass around, as you, most of you know, the basket at the end saying, hey, you better give now. Right? Uh, according to how wonderful you think the pastor is, that should be the amount and all that nonsense. Why? Because the giving is gracious now. Right? 
The law was given through Moses. That's tithing. You shall, right? Grace and truth. In truth, do you truly believe that God has blessed you in the way that the Bible says he has? A spiritual blessing. Do you understand his grace that's involved? Do you understand that he's promised to provide everything you need? Do you understand that the, the grace involved and the privilege really involved in being a part of his work in whatever way you can, and if he's blessed you in any way financially lately, you can do it that way. It's certainly part of how he wants us to live as brothers and sisters. But we're not, by the way, we're not giving it to God. So get that idea out of your head. We're giving it for people, right? Just like if you look at all the giving in the New Testament, it's always for people, always for others, for the poor in Jerusalem, for those among you that are in need. The brothers and the sisters, right? How, what does it mean that you can say, oh, I bless you. I hope you're feeling warm. I love you. And then, then you know, give them what they need. That's the idea, right? To be gracious in our giving. If you have any questions about anything, except how much we're going to sell the building for, I'm not telling you that. But. Questions about the Bible, right? Pastor at lbible.org. Pastor at lbible.org. Let's close again. Father, we thank you now that you gathered us together and we were able to share in your word this morning. We ask, Father, that we be alert, both for opportunities to preach the gospel to the unbeliever and also for opportunities to love one another as your Son has loved us. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. With that, we are now dismissed. Enjoy this great weather. I can't believe how long it's lasting. God is really blessing out this boy from New England with his cool weather still.